And we're back. My name is Father Cham Sakluba. And I'm Spat Maraza. <laughs> Spat. <laughs> this is the second time we did the weird name bit. Is it really? And it, yes, I you don't, don't remember. remember? I, it was I'm, one of our first episodes. I'm bad at remembering things like that. Well, I'm bad at remembering things in general. That's a good point. That's a good point. So, yeah. it's, all, it's all good. <laughs> Who is our guest today, Father hey, Sam? Hey, our guest today was uh, Jason Trenner. He's the founder of Strategus Securities and uh, really a, a phenomenally interesting person. He's also the author yeah. of My Side of the Street and a couple of other books, it looks like. from. from That's a great name for a Wall Street book. It is, My Side of the Street. That's a great name right? for a Wall Street yeah. book. Well, we, didn't, we didn't tell him that when he... We should, Jason, if you're listening to this, that is a great name a for great a Wall title. Street book. It's a great title, yeah. Well, because yeah. it, it also kind of implies like I've taken over one side of the street and, and Wall oh, Street's yeah. a big deal, so... There's, there's something to that. I, I really like that. So uh, what we're saying is he's the man. Yeah, but we got to talk about lots of things, which was also yeah. a lot of fun. This is an interesting episode. I was I was talking to Jason before we uh, before we recorded and kind of how we've interviewed a whole bunch of people, but it's all been in pretty explicitly Catholic fields. Uh, people yeah. who have written books about different things. They've uh, so they've made a contribution through this, or they've got a particular ministry that they do for the, for the life of the church. And and Jason yeah. is is in a lot of ways he's breaking the mold for us. Uh, this is yeah. this is not a guy who has uh, has has done the explicitly. Uh, this is a Catholic finance yeah. thing, but he's bringing in I think that that real beautiful synthesis of, of Catholic faith and the integration of of Catholicism with professional skill and with the world around us and he's recognizing that uh, finances, society, politics these are all things that go together I was, I was really interested yeah it was a lot of fun and we got to talk about other stuff like we got to talk about uh, marijuana and we got to talk about movies and we got to talk about all kinds of like this was fun this was really cool heck yeah um so, if you want to hear us talk about <laughs> politics, drugs, and other things, this is certainly not what you would expect on the tangent, but this was a really fun conversation. And educational values, the philosophy underlying it all, this was, this was a great time. Jason Trenner, phenomenal guest, and uh, I really thoroughly enjoyed it. I don't know how you feel, Matt. I felt great about it. <laughs> it was fun. I really enjoyed it. I don't know. You can you you covered it, man. I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> All right. Well then, let's just let the let's let the music play and, and let him get to Jason. Jason, it's great to meet you this way. Yes, it's great to meet you, Father. <laughs> really appreciate having you here on on the tangent. Uh, my pleasure. And uh, I guess I, I should start by by letting you know that we've got that mutual friend in common, our, our friend Jay Coyle. Uh, <laughs> Which, yep, that was Jay, the big Captain surprise. Yep, yeah. Jay, Jay's my best friend uh, from Georgetown, and then I've known Kathy a long time. So, Matt, how how unreal is this? Uh, my my admin Kathy looks at my calendar and she sees that I've got podcast recording on the calendar. She says, "Oh, what are you doing?" I said, I'm, "We're going to interview a guy named Jason Trenner. And she goes, "No." I said, yeah. She goes, that's Jay's best friend from college. Oh, so her husband is Jason's best friend. This is great. It's a small Catholic world, and I love it. Yeah, Yeah. it's terrific. It's perfect. Um, Well, Jason, let's maybe do a little bit of the bio here first. Uh, Tell us how you end up establishing Strategus uh, 
securities. Did I say that correctly? Yeah, no, that's okay. great. Great strategist. It's a hard, it's a long story how we came up with the name, but um, and uh, but, but we can get into that at some some other point. We but are I, called the tangent. You take the long way. <laughs> I take the long way here. I'm gonna. It's it's a funny thing in many ways. Um, you, you know, people talk about obviously in your line of work, calling, and um, my um, people in my line of work, you wouldn't think of it that way, obviously, uh, for a lot of people. But there, there are, believe it or not, quite a few people that get, you know, kind of catch the bug uh, on Wall Street. My, mm. my parents were both public school teachers that neither of them owned a share of stock uh, in their lives. And uh, to make a long story short, after my junior year, of college, I uh, worked as uh, a cold caller for a number of um, stockbrokers. Uh, mm. They're called financial advisors now, but in those days they were called stockbrokers. And then I really just caught the bug, and then I, I I knew that's what I wanted to do. And then to make a long story short, I I wound up working for a very good uh, outfit that Steve Lee was associated with by the name of International Strategy and Investment, and I worked there for 16 years. Uh, and I became the chief investment strategist there over, you know, kind of started out on the bottom and then worked my way up. And then at a certain point, I really just wanted my own ship to steer. Mm. And so 16 years ago, um, I started in 2006, so it'll be 17 years of September. I started Strategus Research Partners with um, four other people from ISI. And um, we're still going strong. So, you know, some, some said it would never last, uh, but we're, we're still here. Yeah. So what, what do research partners do? What, what's the, what's the idea here? Yes. This is, you know, many, and this may be more information than you need to know, but in the, in the old days before, uh, what they call negotiated commissions on wall street, and that was May day, May 1st, 1975, um, there were negotiated commissions. There are many research firms that were called research boutiques. And, and what they would do simply was provide research to big institutional investors. And um, there were many of them, and they were extraordinarily successful. Um, negotiated commissions came in, and uh, that made the, the that business much more difficult. And that's unfortunately when, um, frankly, uh, the Wall Street research became more and more aligned with investment banking, which eventually led to some of the questions and moral questions that you see hmm. um, later on uh, in Wall Street's uh, history, arc of history. But we were very lucky because we started out as a research firm and we're always a research firm. We have no investment banking. And so what we do quite simply uh, is uh, think about the markets, the economy, uh, the political atmosphere, uh, we spent a lot of time looking at charts, and we make determinations and forecasts about the economy and the markets, and we sell that research to institutional investors around the world. And so we have clients in 45 states and 25 countries right now. Wow. Wow. Okay. I teach gym. <laughs> What's kind of remarkable, too, and that, you know, this is kind of Despite all of the, the talk about um, technology, we may be doing it the old-fashioned way. I'm kind of a very old-fashioned person, but um, we still um, – well, someone from our firm will visit every one of those clients uh, mm -hmm. each year. 
And then I, I traveled 82 days last year. So, um, okay. you know, I go everywhere from like Omaha to Paris, you know, I mean, it's, it's and everything in between. So, yeah. you know, you know, super fancy places and, and places that are not so fancy either. Yeah. So, you, you know, but it's, it's a blessing and a curse in many ways to spend that much time on the road. I mean, the, the, the curse is just airline travel and getting through TSA and sure. all the rest of it, right? Um, so that no one likes that. But the, the blessing, and I'm not just saying this, it really is um, you meet a lot of different people, especially, and you have, you have a much better understanding of the economy and other people mm. across the country. Um, and so it, it helps, I find it helps our research a lot because as you know, New York, you know, it's hard to be well adjusted and, you know, if you live in Manhattan and have an office in Manhattan, you know, it's hard to understand kind of what regular people go through. Mm-hmm. Um, and I find that, uh, these travels are extremely helpful in just understanding, um, economic trends, political trends, social trends. Uh, you get to see a lot, meet a lot of different kinds of people. Something that really intrigues me with what you're doing is that you're taking not just the Wall Street, the stock market aspect of of all of this. You're also looking at the political situation, the social situation. You're looking at the the economy as a whole. And then by this going out and visiting different places, you're, you're actually meeting the people on the ground. I think it's really easy when you're in one particular field to get hyper-focused on that. I'm a priest. And so my focus yeah. tends to be right in my parish, and, and that's kind of the the full orbit that I've got. I don't really look super far beyond my parish boundaries sometimes, and I need to. Uh, and then there's also the things that like I know really well. I, I'm good with theology. I'm good with philosophy. Uh, I don't know anything about the stock market. I don't know anything about it. I see those videos of guys uh, – on the floor, the trading floor, and yeah. they're holding up pieces of paper and they're yelling. And I have no idea who they're talking to, how they can hear anything or what's supposed to be happening. And then at the end of the day, you see the stock market floor and it's littered with all these pieces of paper. And I'm like, those are the papers that those guys were holding. Don't they need them for work or something? And so there's a, a whole aspect of this that's totally foreign. But what I'm, I'm hearing you talk about, and, and I read one of your articles where you, you kind of make these connections between the financial world, the banking world, the economy, society as a whole. And I think that's a really important thing to be able to do. And it's probably important for us to do it in a variety of settings, not just in the in the financial sector, but like it'd be a good thing for priests to be able to do. It's a good thing for teachers to be able to, to expand. It'd be a good thing for politicians to look beyond just their particular office and, and their particular role and see society as a whole and maybe travel a little bit more and get back in touch with the, the reality on the ground. Yeah. Well, listen, I think, you know, a, a, a priest is way ahead of most of us in, in doing that sort of work. <laughs> I, I, w- I would argue this, this is, we're going off on a tangent here. The, the place where we really need it, in my opinion, is in the technology world. Hmm. And because I, I feel very strongly, and, and people have all sorts of ways of doing the job that I do, but I, I very much view it as a social science. Economics and, and the financial markets are social sciences. They're not hard sciences. It's not like chemistry or physics or right. because you can't run controlled experiments. Human beings are are very fickle, very capricious, right? So that's why understanding all of these other things, and this is the way I do it. I spend a lot of time reading history and I, I 
I and I was very uh, very fortunate to have been educated at the time at Georgetown University, where I, I think I was very well educated in Western civilization, mm-hmm. and that's been enormously helpful. I also went to business school and I learned all these quantitative methods and all, all that stuff. But you know, a lot of those things become discredited after like four or five years, you know, right. or they be or they're new. There are new quantitative methods or what mm-hmm. have you. Whereas a lot of the things that you learn from classic literature or theology or philosophy, those are standard, the Bible, they're, they're standard things. That's humanity. Yeah. So the school it, that I teach at is a, is a classical education. Um, and so the very fact that these kids, instead of learning, you know, what, what the latest author of the latest textbook thinks are actually just reading the primary sources. Right. You know, and so, and so instead of reading about, you know, the revolutionary war, um, they are reading John Adams letters. Right. You know? Uh, and, and that is irreplaceable to, to, to read directly from the author. Yeah. I, I mean, I think, you know, there's a little bit of a, and again, I, I, there's a tendency to want to, I mean, to want to replace everything with technology. I to go, I'm mm-hmm. going back to kind of, it's one of my, it's kind of a bet noir of mine. I, I really have this love hate thing with, it's mostly hate, uh, with technology, <laughs> but, um, but I think, um, the humanity can be worn away from it, mm-hmm. uh, as we know. And, um, you know, it leaves a big hole in terms of um, in terms of what people are exposed to and all the rest of it. And you, sometimes you wonder whether if you're too focused on just engineering um, w- without some sort of sense of how it actually affects people, mm-hmm. you know, whether it's computer software or whatever it is, that, you know, you could get yourself, it's not hard to imagine yourself getting yourself into trouble or, or it, it causing trouble or heartache or sadness oh, yeah. or... I, I, again, right. So I come from it from the perspective of teaching and we are running into students have begun using AI to write their essays for them. Sure. Uh, this is even it, at your school, really, Matt? even at my school. No. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, and so they, it, it's something that we're running into and, and like the, the primary concern, I mean, there is the secondary concern of, well, you know, how can I give you a good grade here? Uh, right. you didn't, you didn't do any work. Um, right. But but the primary concern is you don't know not, you don't know how to write an essay now. Right. You have asked this computer program to write your essay, and and the the priest that I co-teach with, Father Joseph Gill, friend of the show, Father Joseph Gill has a, another show on Veritas Catholic Network called Restless. Uh, we're just waiting for that uh, shout out from Father Joseph Gill. Yeah, we're still waiting. No, for he that. has once. He has once. <laughs> oh, okay. Um, uh, but I, you know, I'm, I'm I'm obligated to give him a hard time. Um, <laughs> But he asked, he asked this, this, I think it's called chatbot AI. I think that's the name of it. You're right. Um, to write his homily just to see what it would, what it would do. Yeah. And it was pulling from the church fathers, mm. you know, and defining God as love and, and, you know, utilizing, I know it's the church fathers, but u- utilizing specifically, I believe the, the Augustine's confessions and like, you know, so it's like, there is some real skill. Uh, that is lost, and it technology can be used as this wonderful tool. Uh, but it seems to me that, with in particular with modern technology, the advances we are making now, we are losing so much more than we could gain. Yeah, you know, like the the capacity to interact with another person is what's on the line here. Yeah, well, there, uh, there's that. I th- you know, I I think also I mean, it gets to certain questions about education too. 
mm-hmm. um, which is to say, you know, it's, you could look at education as purely utilitarian, which is like, uh, you know, let me get educated so that I can get a good job and make a lot of money. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, I think the idea of a classical education is that it helps you become a better person, maybe more civic minded, uh, better educated, a more understanding of, of people. So as an example, I mean, the, the people, the, one of the great ironies, let's say, of, of this chat. Yeah, uh, chatbot AI. Yeah, is that um, the people that are probably most at risk of losing their jobs as a result of this are software engineers. Right. Right. Ultimately. Right. You ask the so, AI to go write some right, code. Right. So I mean, it's it's. So I mean, there are others. You know, there's writers and and others that that can right. lose their jobs as well. But but it, I mean, there is a certain irony in, in that it, it seems a, a somewhat um, um, cannibalistic, right? So yeah, you're, 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 you're creating something that's actually going to put yourself out of a job, and I'd, I'm not sure everyone who learned how to code really. You know, yeah, went, they, went into it with that that idea. That that was they learned happen. how to code, but they they certainly didn't learn logic. Yeah. <laughs> right. So, well, this is an interesting thing because obviously we're using technology to to have this conversation. If it wasn't for these yeah, kinds I of uh, web software things that allow us to to have this kind of conferencing, uh, we, we couldn't do this. So our our whole podcast rests. Riverside, on the fact if that you are listening, we are we, not upset with you. No, we love you very much. Um, but yeah. we're. We're our podcast exists because we're able to have this kind of technology. So, at a certain point, we know there's a there's a necessary use of of the technology that's Absolutely. available. And yeah. I talk to parents about this all the time as they're dealing with how to navigate these waters with their kids and and how to give their kids technology while at the same time monitoring and and being careful with it and not letting the kids get totally sucked in. And then there's the I talk to teachers about this and there's the question about how much tech do you use in the classroom versus hard copy books? How much are you asking the kids to read and write, and especially to write by hand? And I've got a whole thing about uh, the the fact that they're not teaching cursive in schools anymore, which I think is a, right. a huge mistake because we're losing something of, of art and of value. And there's also just the technical skill, like the tactile skill with your fingers that's, that's lost when you take away cursive. I think it's the most insane thing in the world that you wouldn't teach kids cursive. <laughs> Yeah. But you know what I found? This is this is great. Okay, tangent here, right? We have our middle school youth ministry, and as as part of their confirmation requirements, the kids have to come at least once a month for middle school youth ministry. So they come in they, and they sign in, and I watch the kids sign in, and they'll they'll write sometimes half in print, half in cursive, because they've learned just enough cursive and they want to try it. The kids want cursive. Why are we? Yeah. De- like taking that away from them. Why are we saying this isn't a worthy skill? It's absolutely worth it. But then we get so much into tech and all this other stuff that they can just type everything. They don't need to worry about their penmanship, but penmanship matters. These are things that are important. So there's like striking that that balance with the technology and the the actual and the, and the human. In, yeah. in your line of work, Jason, as you're doing the market research, as you're examining stocks and all these other, other things, um, Obviously, technology is hugely helpful. In Absolutely, that, but it's also giving you an insight into some of the dangers. So, as as you look out at at the world, you see the necessity and and the usefulness of of technology. So that we're not talking in, in an anti tech fashion. No, but no, where do not you? A Luddite. Yeah, I mean, we <laughs> we we use plenty of tech. Yeah, right? but but I, I just I think there's a risk in 
and using too much of it. So where do you see the risk? What, what, what are the big risks that you would see that we should be cautious of? Well, I mean, I'll, I'll just, I'll use my, well, I'll, I'll talk about my line of work first and then, and then perhaps just maybe more socially, societally, like based on what I see with my own family and my, my own, my, myself, you know, candidly. But I think, um, Father, you and I talked a little bit earlier today, but I, I found in my life, um, in my career, 33 years, that the, some of the people who have made the biggest mistakes that have come closest to torching the entire financial system every 10 years are people that are extremely focused on econometric models and quantitative skills and um, don't think a lot about the potential outcomes that wouldn't be covered by the model. Because mm. models, economic models or quantitative models are only as good as the, the inputs you put in them. And so, as an example, before the financial crisis that was largely caused by housing, um, the models didn't consider the idea that housing prices could actually go down. And that was because there was no data of aggregate housing prices before 1940 or something. Mm. So you're, you built this very, very elegant model, uh, but you didn't consider something that could happen. Uh, and it was just because you were limited by the data that you had. Where, but if you had read history and you had, you'd say, well, this is actually the thing that you think is impossible. actually is more likely, you know, it's more likely than you think. It's still very unlikely, but it's, it's, it's not a, you know, point zero zero one percent chance. It might be a 1% chance or a 2% chance. And that's what happened. And so, to me, that's why it's important to have an override of history and philosophy and all, all these yeah. other things, understanding human beings, I think it's very, very important. Otherwise, you could, you could think that you have the social science perfectly wired when you don't. Well, so in, the exa- in right. that example, we're looking at data and the data really represents more the, the numbers and the, the particular economic trends, but it's failing to take into account a different type of data, which is the sociological, it's the human, it's it's these other these other areas, these other types of knowledge, but those don't really get figured into the what what what, what was the word used? Econometric well, model? Know, yeah, well especially in economics, I mean, you know, the twentieth the century they, they call it the first measured century. Hmm. Okay. And it was probably the first in, in many ways, because it was the first time you actually really started to measure things. Uh, with any sort of precision or regularity or many, many things before then was very, particularly with economic data. Um, it, it's hard to get very robust economic data really before, I, I don't, you, you can, you can piece things together, but re- really regularly um, and, and professionally done data, it doesn't really exist before like 1930, really. Mm. And so, um, of course, humanity, um, you know, um, it, it encompasses thousands of years of, of human beings many times acting precisely the same way. You know, the, <laughs> name, the, the names may change, but the, the outcomes a lot of times are often the same. And so uh, now, of course, I, you know, I, I, I'd say I've, I've learned this in some ways the hard way myself. I don't want to make it seem as if I had this all figured out myself, but this is just through 33 years of doing this you realize that there's got to be a combination 
and particularly in my field, my line of work, you have to you have to respect the data and the numbers that you have, but you also have to have a very good sense of, of history and of, of human beings, psychology, emotional makeup, mass movements, all these things mm. become very, very important. Um, from a broader perspective, I mean, I, I think um, and you and I maybe chatted about this over email, but I, you know, I, I feel as a father of two children, I, I, I wish the smartphone and the iPhone were never invented. I, I, I think it's a, I, I really think it's a pox upon the, um, the, the emotional and mental health of, of adolescents mm. and, and also adults. I mean, I, I, I wouldn't Absolutely. exclude myself. Yeah. Uh, from that either, uh, Agreed. you know, but, uh, you know, yeah. it, it, it's just, I think with kids, it's harder to, to realize, uh, how harmful it is before it's too late. Uh, so, yeah. And it's hard to teach kids how to balance it. Yeah. You know, so it's, they're, they're just intrinsically more, uh, susceptible to it. So I, I, I would imagine though, the, 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 I mean, have, have you been teaching long enough so you can see a, a, a market difference in people's, well, uh, attention span or you know that right so so i've only been teaching for two years okay um i'm i'm 25 years old okay. um so i actually was in high school and when i got my first iphone uh so i can i can look at my own education as an adolescent pre-iphone and post-iphone right um and of course there are more amusing stories like for example i my my junior year of high school, we started studying something that I wasn't necessarily as interested in during uh, U.S. history. So my friend and I watched all three Pirates of the Caribbean movies on on my iPhone in the back <laughs> of class. Um, but at the same time, right that that is an indicate like distraction was so easy. I had I had a miniature television right. sitting directly in front of me on my desk. Um, that said, the school that I work at, we take their phones in the morning. Um, uh, good for you. Yeah, and there's so their cell phones. I mean, listen, we we have found kids that you know you sneak in with a fake phone and whatever. You know, uh, <laughs> you're you're not going to have a perfect system, but for for the most part, the, the the kids are pretty good at it. At a minimum, even if they sneak their phones in, that means they can maybe glance at it for two minutes in the bathroom in between periods. Yeah. Uh, and and okay, you know, right. But but you're you're certainly not using it in class. Um. Yeah. But the beautiful thing is that during lunch, they get a 40-minute lunch. They can go outside. They talk to each other. It's yeah. awesome. They actually communicate. Yeah. Uh, and and I, I don't think it's an accident that at our school, uh, if you go to – when I proctor a school dance, right uh, – the kids dance with one another. That you yeah. call it proctoring a school dance is hilarious. <laughs> I have to call you it proctor an exam. You, you chaperone no, 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 something no. else. Like, no, 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 no. I am not attending the school dance. Let's be very clear. Despite the fact that they have asked, <laughs> they asked my wife and I to go to prom. <laughs> we are not going to prom. We might proctor prom, <laughs> but we're not going to prom. Uh, you know, but but it's awesome to see that the kids. Like it, you know, in a in a in an age where so many of their peers uh, are just totally you know sucked in, they yeah. actually are willing to to communicate with one another. It's great. Yeah, it's no, great. I'd say amen to that. I mean, I see that with my own kids. It's and it's very hard. Of course, you know, it's, you'd love to. Um, 
you'd love to say, well, gee, I, you know, I, I, you know, I remember thinking like, I'll never let my kid have a phone or, mm -hmm. you know, but it's, it's virtually impossible in today's world. I mean, it, uh, yeah. very, very, very difficult. Um, I, I'm sure there are parents that, that have done it, but uh, I haven't met any, to be honest with you. Yeah. And, um, but it's, it's finding the balance so that the kids can learn how to communicate with one another. Uh, I think it also, it, a lot of times too, the, the way you're communicating over uh, over phone obviously is so. Um, it, again, it sucks out the humanity. You don't you're not seeing the facial expressions yeah. of the other people. You're not you're not getting a sense of who the other person is. It, it can obviously lead to behaviors that are yeah. so harmful that that would never happen in a face to face meeting right, right. Um, and i think particularly with girls and other other things there's a lot of other yeah ish self-esteem issues other things um that that come up so it is interesting i've 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 talked to we there are quite a f few kids uh, so i think the school has a total it's fairly small it's 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 also fairly new uh they have 110 students maybe 115 right and i think there are about 10 or 15 kids in the school that in the high school that don't have cell phones um and it wow. is interesting because they simultaneously recognize the freedom that comes with that and also the fact that they are not necessarily ostracized, right. but that there are some real difficulties. Hmm. Um, so even these kids, they, they've got enough presence of mind to recognize, well, I'm definitely benefiting from not having a cell phone, yeah. but also there is a true harm that comes with it. So I do think it's a real balance. Uh, that said, when when I was uh, doing my pre cana for for getting married, I got married last summer. Congratulations! The pre thank you very much. The the priest that began our pre cana, we actually did our pre cana in one place and then in a second place. Um, but he he began it and and he had just uh, is the word accepted my wife into the church father. Is that how I would phrase that? Uh, my, she was my, she was received. She was into confirmed. The she, she was received, received into, into the, the church. church. Yeah. Uh, and that had happened a couple weeks prior. Uh, and so he, it, funny enough, he said, and I'm, I'm, I'm getting my master's in theology, so I'm, I'm familiar with the Catholic faith, but he <laughs> said, he said, most of the times these meetings are me explaining to people who Jesus is, you know, like they, they want to get married in a church because grandma asked them to, um, but with you guys, I don't have to do that. So I'm just going to give you a bunch of practical advice that I've heard before. Uh, and he said, based off of his time in confession with teenagers, the single worst thing a parent could do would be to give their kid a smartphone. Mm. That it is that if you are looking to open a window to mortal sin for your kid, it's giving your kid a smartphone. Mm. And 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 at the same time, it's like, well, I hear that, you know, and and that I mean, those are pretty ominous words, you, you know, like you got to take that seriously. Uh, but at the same time ostracizing your kids not a good thing yeah. you know so it, it really is a balancing act it doesn't surprise me in some ways that he, he, i mean listen for adults too oh absolutely a whole a whole other world of things um, oh yeah and, and avenues right but particularly for kids that don't have the the uh the context and and i think it it, it weakens unfortunately the the par the the power of the parents to influence their kids or at least oh, yeah. it's competing with uh the twitter the influence the parents <laughs> have over their kids right yeah. you know they're not gonna it was raining all weekend and this you know and and my 14 year old daughter I, 
I don't know how much time she spent on her phone yesterday, but mm -hmm. it was a lot. It was, you know, <laughs> right. it was shockingly. <laughs> right. I don't, I'm afraid I'm embarrassed to even admit it, frankly. But <laughs> no, the concept no, of no. her spending that much time with me and my wife would be unthinkable. I mean, right. just, you know, it would be Guantanamo Bay for her, you know, or something. I am, would be. I'm saying all of this, and I literally got a new iPhone a couple of days ago. <laughs> Right. So, we're, we're, all, we're all part of the same hypocrisy, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah. You know, we we understand that, but it doesn't just because of that doesn't mean that it what we're saying isn't valid, right? I mean, no, just, not we, at all. Just because we can't walk the line perfectly yeah. doesn't mean yeah. that the line doesn't exist or it doesn't have so, value. So, considering that, do you how do you think you strike the balance? Not not to put you on the spot, right? But if you had to strike the balance. Is it, is it, I refuse, I set, I make a setting on my phone that I don't spend an, over an hour on my phone per day? Yeah, I, th I mean, my wife and I have, and, and again, we have two kids and my, my son, frankly, he was the, he was among the very first to, to, you know, to have it, mm -hmm. have a phone. He's 20 years old. And so with him, unfortunately, he, he got very wrapped around the axle on it. And so we had to very much limit his phone time. Right. Right. Um, to certain hours and make sure he did his homework. And then we took it before he went to bed and, you know, all of those things. I, I think that's great. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, you have to do something because otherwise yeah. the, the, that's it. Um, at least my son would have, you know, never gotten any sleep or anything. Uh, <laughs> my daughter, um, we take it at night before she goes to bed, mm -hmm. but we, we, she's kind of left her own auspices, uh, but she's a different child and, you know, right, the yeah, kids yeah. are all different and they, they handle it differently and uh, all the rest of it. But, mm -hmm. but I, I think, you know, at a minimum, there have to be some limits and you have to be very, I, I, and I'm hardly an expert on this, but as parents, you just have to be very attentive to yeah. how much time they're spending on it and, and whether it's interfering with the things that are really, really worthwhile. Yeah. Um, Given how ubiquitous the technology is. So from, from the time that uh, a kid is in even middle school now, I mean, I didn't have a cell phone until I was in college because you didn't have cell phones. Uh, you, and right. when you did, when I did get a cell phone, it stayed in the car unless I absolutely needed to make a phone call. And like, I, I'm old enough to have had a, a cell phone that charged for roaming. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I go way back in this. <laughs> yeah. But all of these things have become so common. And in a lot of ways, these have, these have also become tools that are necessary in education, in business, in social life. Absolutely. We can't imagine not communicating with people this way. And yet, we've still not figured out the way to replace a handshake and that face-to-face -face communication. Mm -hmm. So coming back to your approach and, and your staff's approach, as, as with Strategas, you're, you're going out and... Uh, you're pulling in all this, all this information. And so you're using right. a tremendous amount of technology to bring in all of that stuff, to That's analyze right. it, to examine it, and then to, to compile information for people that can then be sent out. But you're still going and directly meeting with people. Uh, do you see yourself kind of preserving a skill so that it doesn't get lost? I, I think, I mean, um, I mean, that isn't the intent per se, but it's all from a very practical point of view. In my opinion, it's the only way we have been able to build a business and hmm. maintain the relationships that we have. Because we, we have a lot of competitors. There's a lot of people out there that do great work 
Um, and so, but ultimately my old boss told me one thing is that people pay people. And, um, and I've never forgotten that because it's, there's nothing more true than that. So um, there, there are a lot of people that analyze the stock market or political trends or economic trends, but having the ability to, to go and meet the person face to face to, to um, explain to them your point of view, why you're thinking mm -hmm. the way you're thinking. And then what, what winds up happening inevitably, some, some clients I've had for quite literally 30 years, they understand your own weaknesses and your own biases and your own, they, they understand things that you're, you're good at or not so good at. And, and, but that, those are very valuable relationships, I think, for the clients too, uh, because th they'll understand when, oh, gee, you know, this is something I should really, I, you know, Jason's particularly good at this or yeah, he's not really good at this, this aspect of, mm -hmm. you know, I'm not going to pay any attention to this. I'll, I'll, be, I'll smile, but I'm going to, you know, <laughs> uh, I'll, I'll just, I'll wait till he gets onto the other stuff. So I think I think that it is preserving, and I, I think I, one of the nice things because we hire a lot of younger people, and I think um, they get much better um, socially mm -hmm. uh, by working with us. And of course, everyone's a little shy, and uh, when you start working and uh, all, all the rest of it, so that would happen naturally. But I think the job forces them to to be better. Yeah. Well, I was going to ask you about that. As you're hiring people, especially hiring younger people, maybe folks fresh out of college or something like that, one of the things that we read about all the time is that recent college graduates or, or people just kind of getting into the into the job market are often uncomfortable in certain in-person situations. And that goes back to before the pandemic, right? This is this is not a, a brand right. new thing that has only just started. It's it's something that, that's been there for a while. And I wonder sometimes, is, is part of that the the rise of technology as a substitute. So I look back to like 11 years ago, I was, before I was a pastor, maybe it's 12 years ago now, man, uh, I was, I was in a parish and, uh, the, there was a school attached and, and I was in the school one day and the virtue of the month was courage. And the kids had written these little essays about courage and times that they had to exhibit courage. And, and one of the boys, he was in sixth grade, maybe fifth grade. And he had written this, this thing about when, he and his cousins were on vacation and they wanted to go and uh, go tubing or something. And they had to go to the, they actually had to go to the counter and make a reservation. You couldn't do it online. They didn't have, right. they're were, they were at a resort or something. So you had to go and make your appointment. And he said, so I went and I made the appointment with my cousins, but I was the one who, who had to talk. And then the next thing he put was, and then uh, the other time I had to exhibit courage was when I thought about becoming an altar boy. And so I manned up and asked. And I just thought that was the greatest way to say, I manned up, I did it, you know? Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. But there's a, there's a skill that he was learning that, you know, at that point, he didn't have a phone, he didn't have any of this stuff. And so his parents were doing absolutely the right thing and telling him, well, you go do this, like go ask yeah. about it and yeah. kind of coaching him through it. They weren't going to let him just fail and never do anything. They were going to back him up the whole way, but they were coaching him in how to go out and do that. But more and more and more as technology is replacing that in-person interaction, there are skills that we're not learning or yeah. that our, our young people aren't necessarily learning such that they might be coming out of school with the same degree that everybody who you would want for your firm has. And they might be coming out with the academic resume that looks exactly right. the way the way that you'd want it. 
But are, are you finding that there's a bigger learning curve on the interpersonal side of things and the, the social intelligence? Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I think, you know, we now we've I've had some experience in doing 16 years of doing this now. So we, you know, and there were when we first started, um, we had a very traditional, let's say, Wall Street way of hiring people, which would be, you know, you might bring somebody in four or five, maybe even a half a dozen times, they would meet with a bunch of people. And then you get together and you'd say, well, do we like this person? Do we think they can do the job and so on? And, and frankly, the, the, it, it came, I came to the conclusion at a certain point that our, our results were kind of random, you know, that, that we could have picked anybody. We, you know, our success was, so we changed the nature of the, of the way we hire people and uh, so it wasn't so much about personality. Um, you know, you, you start first with interviewing the person to see if they kind of have the hunger and the interest in the, in the job. And you're trying to figure that out just by talking to them. You know, have they read books? Have they read articles? Have they talked to other people? Do they have some understanding of what they're going to be doing? So and if those things check out, then, then we have them do a practical exercise. So we give them essentially a homework assignment. And so if they're in research, they have to do a research report or they have to do a spreadsheet or some skills. Or if they're in sales, they have to read the research for a week and then call one of the partners and, and, and try to mm. talk to them about what's in the research. And then if they pass that um, part, then we have them come in and talk to people and kind of, what, for lack of a better term, the support staff. You know, the, the admin, administrative people, the people in the back office. And that's largely to just make sure they're good people, you know, mm -hmm. that they're not, you know. So, so it's, you know, it's hunger, it's skill, and it's good person. Mm. And we could care less, uh, to say in our shop, we could care less where someone went to college, um, which is kind of ironic. I mean, given where some of us went to school, but I, you know, I don't, incre I would say increasingly, I think it makes no difference whatsoever. Mm -hmm. I, you know, I, I, I'm not sure if it ever made that much of a difference, but I think increasingly, um, I don't care. I'm, yeah. You know, we're just trying to run a successful company. It's not, this isn't the faculty lounge at Yale or something, you know, we, mm -hmm. we're just trying to get highly motivated people um, to do a good job. So we've got a lot of kids then in high school who are, they're looking at, at their college options and they're looking at big name schools. They're taking out enormous loans and things like that. What advice do you give to them about finding a job in the market, uh, in their desired field, even if they don't get to go to one of those schools? Yeah, I, I have a somewhat countercultural view uh, of this in a way, in, in that I, I really um, don't think it matters. I think there are so many great colleges out there so many great um I, i'm not even sure i mean in my job to be honest with you we don't have anyone in my uh that in the professional ranks of my company that didn't go to college but i, I wouldn't dismiss somebody who didn't go to college out of hand either to, to be honest with you it's, mm. it's never happened uh but but i wouldn't dismiss them out of hand if they didn't have a college degree i would say for you know, if you if you're going in a traditional path um, on Wall Street, 
um, the better school you go to, the, the better chance you might have of getting a job at a name brand school. If you go to a name brand school, you get a job at a name brand company, right. like Goldman Sachs or Morgan Stanley or what have you. But the, Wall Street is so large and there's so many great companies. And there's so many great companies that would offer you better opportunities for advancement as a young person than Goldman Sachs or Morgan Stanley. So I would, I very much would focus on actually trying to learn something. You know, go someplace where you feel comfortable, where you like the people that that mm. that that offers things that you're interested in, and you'll come out a better. You know, you'll have more fun. You'll you'll uh, be a better person. You'll be better adjusted. Um, and Wall Street is is big, even though it's a small industry, it's 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 very it's big enough so that it it can accommodate. Uh, plenty of people. I mean, and and what you find, and because I'm very uh, obviously um, biased because I run a small company, but there's so many great companies that your grandma would never heard of on Thanksgiving Day, it, you know. And I think the same is true of colleges too. I mean, you know, it's just uh, there. There's so many places that you can go to and be happy and mm -hmm. learn something. Mm -hmm. You know, people I think lose the point again. That, they're, they're looking at that as a very utilitarian uh, yeah. approach. And there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, people, you have to go out and you have to make money and all that stuff. Yeah. But, but if you go to a good school and you get well-educated and you learn something, you're going to be highly marketable. I, I really believe that. Mm. Yeah. That is something I try and stress with the kids in the high school where I say, you're not here just to get an A. You know, right. there, there are so many kids who would who would – I know that they would give up learning something if it guaranteed them the grade. Right. And I try and say that's you're just you're missing the entire point. <laughs> right. You're just missing the whole thing. If yeah. if if you're going just for the letter, you know? Yeah. 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 Now I'm I'm curious, right, since uh the only real exposure to Wall Street that I ever had was movies. Um and now uh, you and and for those of you who can't see, which is everybody listening, uh, Jason was shaking his head there. Um, how does one balance Catholicism and Wall Street? Yeah. Well, the, f the first thing I would say, and I've, so I, I, um, do you get this question all the time? Well, you know, it's, it's what I do. Yeah. Uh, where I've gotten it. And, and actually the, um, uh, I wrote a book called uh, my side of the street. Okay. And I, I have about a thousand copies in my basement. Um, you know, if anyone wants one, but, um, uh, there's a couple of things I, uh, that are in there. One is I have a list of movies that are actually good representations or decent representations of what wall street is. Okay. 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 And then, um, I also have a story in there, um, where, um, I was on the sidelines of a lacrosse field, with my son, and uh, I got to know one of the fathers pretty well. And at a certain point, he said to me, you know, I watched this movie, you know, Wolf of Wall Street. And, you know, was that, is it like that? You know, is it with the drugs and the women and the right. partying? And I said, no, it's, it's nothing like that at all. Right. And then he paused and he said, that's too bad. Um, and uh, so, you know, but... You know, there, there are, I mean, like in any job or any career, you know, there, there are bad actors and people that behave right. poorly. Uh, by the same token, the people, you know, 
that do what I do and are serious about it and mm-hmm. want to be successful and last for 30 years. Right. This is like, it, it is a calling. It's a, right. you know, it, it is a almost all encompassing job where you have to work extraordinarily hard right. and be very much on top of your game. So um, Wolf of Wall Street would be the worst movie I could, I, to me that is like, it, it has about as much to do with Wall Street as like right. some guy knocking over a liquor store, you know, or something. I mean, it's disgusting. Right. It's, um, right. you know, um, there's a movie called Margin Call, which I think actually is pretty good, which shows, I, I would argue, shows some of the tensions, real tensions okay. of people who are professionals face. And the real, one of the real tensions, particularly at a big investment bank, is especially when things aren't going so well, mm-hmm. is, you know, who do you care about first, your, your, your firm or your client? Mm-hmm. And a lot of times you don't necessarily have to make those. It's not a zero-sum game. A lot of times you don't have to make those decisions that, right. that both sides can win. But that movie is particularly good at showing when things are very tense, very tough, right. or like during right. the financial crisis. And realistic. And yeah. realistic. People right. really had to make those choices. And, it, right. you know, you have on one side, you have people that are signing your paycheck. On the other side, right. you have people that you care about that, that are part of the reason why you're getting a paycheck is you have good relationships with them. And so mm-hmm. to me, that's a, if you're going to show some of the moral uh, tensions, to me, that's one of the better movies that's realistic and, and not, um, right. Right. Uh, you know, um, disgusting, uh, for lack of a better term. No, I um, think that's the accurate one. <laughs> yeah, right, <laughs> yeah. right. So. Yeah. How, do you, how do we find that, that space in between the, the sort of stereotypes? So on the one hand, you've got the movies, the Hollywood image of, of a very cutthroat, immoral, or at, at best amoral Wall Street where there's, it's not so much the work that's actually being done, it's the extracurriculars that are just the, kind of the right. highlight. Uh, and the work on Wall Street just becomes the vehicle so that you can participate in all these other crazy activities. And right. then on, yeah. the other the other sort of stereotype is uh, kind of the Occupy Wall Street movement of the, Wall Street represents everything that's wrong with corporate greed and corruption in, in government and finance and everything like that. I, I look around at, at I, I'm in a parish where we have a lot of guys who are financial advisors, financial analysts. Right. We have guys who are are working on Wall Street. We have we have people who are involved in this in this industry, and I can I can say very honestly that these are some of the most honest people I've ever known. Some of the most generous people. Some of the kindest people. These are not wild and crazy human beings, uh, but those stereotypes persist. And yeah. I mean, obviously they're going to persist for a reason because there are some people, like you said, who are are, are the bad actors, but. In a much different way, it seems like, especially with with your work, that that you approach this in in a much different sense. This is not so much just for the the sake of gain by itself, pure profit or anything, but actually that economics, finances, these things, they actually have a role to play in the health and the wellness of of all of society. So how do you how do you look at it? Well, I I very much and I I very much believe this that I I I. Studied it. I've looked at it. Um, I, I feel very strongly that I, uh, and I'll be. Uh, maybe this is countercultural too. I, I think America is the the greatest show on earth. I think it's the greatest. I think it's the greatest country in the history of history. 
I think a, a good part of that is because of the depth of its its banking system and its capital markets, and which, in many ways, and I'm you know kind of quoting from the book here, but it breathes it breathes life into dreams of people of entrepreneurs, mm -hmm. and and I also think capitalism in its purest form, I, and I, I say this as having a service oriented company, um, if it's to be successful, it has to serve the needs or wants of other human beings. Mm. Like otherwise it doesn't, you know, if, if you're just doing your own thing or, uh, you know, you're not going to be a successful business. So you have to focus on what people want and, and, and give it to them in a good way. And so that they want to continue to do business with you. Okay. So again, all of this is largely about time frames. I think good business people, good, good businessmen and good business women that are in for the long term. Um, I think they understand that implicitly that you know you can't burn other people or uh, and and wish to stay employed mm. for a long period of time. Now Wall Street, I will say, is not without its flaws. I think that some of the things that have happened in the history of Wall Street have have changed it. In until really the seventies, most Wall Street firms were partnerships; that they weren't public companies. And so in many ways, they were like law firms or, you know, medical practice or something. And um, our real partnership, uh, which is what I have, you know, where the partners have money at risk, um, it's the best risk management tool you can have because it's your own money, right? Um, and so you, you're going to treat that a bit differently than a public company where you're using other people's money. And that, unfortunately, that that really started to pick up speed in the 70s. Um, Goldman was one of the last companies to go public in the late 90s. And frankly, that's where a lot of the troubles began, because then you, you wind up having, this is where also the size of the government gets very large, but you wind up having a situation where in some of the large companies, you can socialize the losses. So, you you know, you take all the gains when things are going great, People make a fortune, and then let's say in the global financial crisis in 2008, things fall apart, and then all of a sudden it's the American taxpayer's problem. Mm. And that's what drives people insane, and you can't blame them. I mean, you know, you, you and that's why I, I feel, you know, sometimes you, you love something so much you want it to be protected almost from itself. And, and that's why I, um, frankly, um, I believe very strongly in having a robust regulatory environment over Wall Street. I, I, I don't, and, we're, and I can tell you, we are a highly regulated firm, Strategas, um, for being such a little firm. We, we, have, we have plenty, of, it's, and it's a pain in the neck, and it, it costs a lot of money. But, um, of course, the irony is about regulation is that it generally tends to focus on the bombs that already went off. And the the... Uh, entrepreneurs and capitalists will always be ahead of the regulators, and, and that's right. why, unfortunately, this will continue to be an issue because the people will figure out a way to get around the, the regulations and find out other find other ways to take yeah. risks that are too big. Or so, unfortunately, that exists uh, outside of the financial realm too, right? That there's 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 ways that. Uh, we put in safeguards and processes and policies after there's been some kind of crisis or misbehavior or or scandal or something like that. We so we put in these these policies, 
so that in the future it won't happen, which is which is good, uh, but also so that we can be seen to be doing something about it. But the the bad actors are going to find other ways, and then they'll figure out a way that well, this wasn't in the policy, so I can I can of course. it must be it must be okay for me to do it, and and that of course yeah that's that's seriously a problem. Yeah. But uh, in terms of. Uh, not just the, the the regulatory stuff, but you, you talk about a public company that has a, a major problem that then socializes its problem. Right. And that's a really interesting phrase to me. <laughs> it socializes the yeah. problem. So in, on, on the one hand, uh, passed on to the American taxpayer. Uh, right. Our company goes under, so the problem, the debt, all the all that money that has been lost, it's really the taxpayer who's lost the money. We got our money already. We we made the money and and we're all set to go. Something that that popped up uh, in one of the articles that you sent me earlier uh, was the I'm going to get the phrase wrong, I think, uh, but the idea of publicly funding private vice. Right. I don't know if I'm if I'm getting the phrase exactly yeah, the, no, the way that you said it, but that sounds to me like socializing the problem, but just in a different way. So instead of uh, passing on our failure as a company to the American taxpayer, uh, there's a, a way in which uh, money is being used to to do that. Does does that sound well, right? Is, like, am, is, am I on the right track with what you're saying? I, I think you're on the right track. It's just I would say that the 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 bad actor in this case happens to be government. Hmm. I, I feel very strongly that there's a there's a um, relationship between public finance public finance and private virtue. And that if you have a, a period of time as we've had over the past twelve or thirteen years, where you've had very easy money and mass affluence, um, virtue tends to get lost. Hmm. Uh, and sadly, uh, and I'm going to sound like I'm right out of like 1951 here, you know, but we are, um, I, I think, let's say in New York State, I live in Manhattan, um, we're, we're, New York State is not too far away from selling indulgences, right? <laughs> so if you, if you take, let's say the marijuana, I hate to even use the term industry, hmm. uh, it's nothing more than selling indulgences. It's, mm. it's, it's, you're, you're selling, you're, the, the state has decided that um, whether it hurts people or not, they're losing out on tax revenue. They, they don't have, in my opinion, enough guts to, to cut spending in places where it needs to be cut. So it's going to find new ways of raising tax revenues, regardless of the impact that it might have on its citizens. Mm. And, mm. Um, that's, that can be true with gambling too. It can be true with, in some places, prostitution. Um, and so, um, people are people, people are human beings. None of us are perfect. I, I understand that. But I also think that, um, you know, first do no harm. I don't think, I, I don't think the government should be in, in the, in the business of encouraging bad behavior. Mm -hmm. You know, we, we all have temptations, of bad behavior enough. On our own, yeah. you know, we don't, we don't need the government helping us. Um, yeah. And um, so, but I, I think that's an example of right now, candidly, where um, our government, federal and state, uh, are, are failing us. Well, so in this case, we're talking about uh, 
legalization of marijuana and basically the government creating an industry uh, before this was something that was completely illegal. So it wasn't an industry. It was a black market uh, or was it was at least an illegal right. activity. Uh, and then creating it to be something now that can be uh, that can be regulated. So they've they've could we say they've invented a, an industry? I, th- I, I think they're they're trying. I mean, frankly, I think they're trying to create something that just creates tax revenues for them. <laughs> so this is they're this is how they're they're money. basically starting their own business. Yeah, I mean, we want a we want a piece of the action, right? Uh, so, and you know, I guess the hope is that it's better regulated or or something. Um, but you know, frankly, in places like California and New York, the black market in in at least in marijuana is thriving. Uh, because the tax, the taxes that uh, the state is imposing uh, on these products is so high that uh, people who are regular consumers still buy their right. products illegally. Hmm. Right. So it's you know, I, and I don't want to go too far down the road on this because I, I just I, I feel very strongly that that um, substance abuse is one of one of the great scourges in in the United States, right? right mm. now and, and mm. marijuana probably seems tame compared to fentanyl or you know all, all these sure. other things but but i also think that it, it sets a tone uh it, it and and when if you've been to manhattan lately you'll you'll smell the you'll smell marijuana everywhere yeah uh, it is ubiquitous i keep it, hearing that from people hiding it any, anymore yeah. and I, I think that's a shame I really, I really do. I think as, as someone who lives here, I think it's it's just a bad example for uh, business formation or family formation. Yeah. Or, yeah. Um, and and um, we know people are going to sin. We, we understand that. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. Um, I I wholeheartedly agree with you that the the substance abuse issues is one of the great scourges that we face as a society. On this one, I, I have the question, which is how do we how do we recognize the the serious problem that is substance abuse without going the route of of uh, like the prohibition era laws against alcohol? Yeah, yeah. Because prohibition was was ultimately a really bad idea that didn't really work, created a criminal class uh, and and a whole market for for all this stuff, and it ended up being a, an incredibly ineffective way to do things and it was it was a poor way to try to enforce morality uh and then i I might have my history wrong here so correct me but it it seems like post prohibition uh then there's actually more government regulation over the industry the alcohol industry uh so more taxes coming in and things like that but it it kind of seemed like at least i don't know the yeah, the whole thing well, didn't Catholic, work. Catholics, of course, were the most were the, were the biggest um, opposition to prohibition, right? Um, for a variety of reasons, um, and so Al Smith, who was uh, ran for president in nineteen twenty eight, very much um, they called them wets. You know, he was very much on yeah. the wet side. Yeah, the dries, the wets. And, uh, <laughs> and so, listen, I I'm not I'm just a humble Wall Street guy. I I don't know how to solve these these issues and and an outright prohibition complete prohibition um is i'm sure not practical or even wise but i also i also feel pretty strongly that the state you know quote unquote the state really should not be in the business uh, of of promoting 
right. these things that are so clearly harmful um, to people and particularly kids, you know. So, and, and that's, um, you know, there's got to be a way to do this um, so that it, it's not as harmful as it is mm. right now. And again, I think for a lot of people, they might, you know, this, I'm, I'm, I'm sure I'm sounding like the ultimate square uh, here. <laughs> Um, so I get that, but but um, but I, I do think it becomes a slippery slope, too. Where yeah. you know now, now they're talking about putting a casino in Times Square, and now they're you know because really I didn't I didn't know that. Oh well, it's it's largely because the tax base is eroding because of other reasons, and so right. the, the the quote unquote solution is hmm. to uh, yeah. essentially create you know. Um, tax other vices or, or, you know, do other things. So it's yeah. just not, doesn't seem to be a particularly effective. It, uh, it is approach. interesting. I, I've, I've had this conversation. Uh, it's been a different conversation. Again, I, it always comes back to the things that I talk about with my students. Um, and one of those conversations has been, how do you know what a good society is? Um, and the, the answer that I have, admittedly stolen from Peter Kreeft, who stole it from a different philosopher, um, was that a good society is one where it is easy to be good. Yeah. You know, I and, like that. and based off of, you know, what we're talking about here, the idea of taxing something and therefore encouraging vice seems to just immediately disqualify our society from being a good society. Um, and and I am not saying that with a with any form of hatred toward can, my. Can country. I add something to that, Matt? Because I think Please I, think, do, I yeah. think you're onto something there. So the idea that a good society is one where it's easy to be good, and then if we're creating uh, the marijuana industry as an example, right, where we're going to by taxing this, we're going to generate revenue for the government. Um, what that also means then is that we have to create a, a way in which this behavior feels like it's okay, and so we actually have to start to convince ourselves that certain things are, are okay. Right. And in right. the end, we're convincing ourselves that certain things are okay and starting to more broadly accept a a skewed vision of humanity and, and of yeah. morality. And all yeah. along, there are, follow the money, because there, there are people who are profiting from all of that. And so, yeah, that becomes kind of a question. All right, so Jason, what, what do you think? Do you see that happening? Do you see profit margins increasing for a certain class of people or a certain category while others are being kind of led down a, a path that only leads to, to destruction and to harm. And that's a, a social question at the same time that it's deeply related to a financial question. Does that make yeah, any sense no, I, at all? It's a, no, it's a, it's a great question. I, and I, and of course you, you can, um, I don't go too far down this road because, you know, again, I, I, I'm just a humble father and businessman. So, you know, I, I don't have all the answers, but. Um, you do. You have all of the answers. <laughs> <laughs> but listen, I, I just, um, I, I don't think there's anything inherently wrong with profit. I don't think there's anything, uh, I, I, not at all. I, don't, I, 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 I believe free enterprise is completely consistent with Catholic teaching mm -hmm. uh, I think it gives largely because it provides the most freedom people are free to choose what they what they do right um, by the same token unfortunately and uh, father we talked about this I, I think in many ways uh, traditional 
arbiters or traditional influences on society, um, like family, like faith, were far greater than the influence of the state. Mm. Again, the state mm. writ large. And I think right now a lot of families um, and people of faith are finding as if they have to compete with the state in terms of the education of their own children, yeah. uh, in terms of the wish to, to worship the way they want, to have yes. certain ideas that may be countercultural uh, for whatever reason. And that, in my opinion, that that's the opposite of what America was formed to do, right? right. I mean, yeah. America was largely formed as a way uh, to escape religious persecution, was, was formed as a way to live your life as you saw fit, right? And so, um, you know, I, I, again, I have no problem. I, I'm, I'm a big capitalist, but I think there are, I think there are limits. And I don't, I don't think, again, as I said before, I don't think the government really should be in the, in, uh, in the realm of encouraging any social or harmful behaviors mm. at a minimum. Is the, yeah. is the key to healthy capitalism generosity? I, boy, that's a boy. That's uh, I don't want to go nuts here because if I if I say this, I, I don't know how many people listen to your show. We or, don't either. Know, don't worry about it. It's fine. I, yeah, I, yeah, I, I, yeah. I don't want to get a lot of hate mail. Tens but. and tens of people <laughs> listen to but every listen, episode. I, I do think I'll say that I don't know if it's generosity. I I do think again, if you build companies that last, mm -hmm. I do think a lot of the good a lot of very good values. I would say, you know, what you would consider Judeo-Christian values at the yeah. heart of of some of the greatest companies, some of the greatest entrepreneurs in our history were mm. very religious people. I mm. mean, right. uh, and also simultaneously hated, I, I would say, you know, Rockefeller or Carnegie or other people mm. by, uh, it's a different time, but, um, but they also did a lot to help humanity. Um, right. Which, um, you know, if you were going to look at the totality of what they did, they did a lot of good. Right. Um, you know, being able to stay warm, uh, you know, it's, it's big. You know, it's kind of a big thing. Uh, <laughs> you know, being, being able to get from one place to the next is a pretty positive. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, pretty positive development. So, but. Um, being able to stay warm while getting from one place to the other. Yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Exactly, yeah. With the radio on. I yeah, mean, I mean, I mean, um, yeah. Let's no, face I, it. <laughs> yeah, so I mean, I, I think that's the that's the one thing I can say. I mean, I that that saddens me a little bit about people's discussion in today's world about capitalism and about uh, about America, and, and it, it's just that people are. Not, if let's let's take fossil fuels as an example, mm -hmm. uh, because I think um, I think climate change has become a secular religion personally for many people. Um, where, you know, sometimes you wonder, you know, like these people seem to love the planet more than they like other human beings. Um, and I love the planet too, but there, there's still a billion people on the planet that have never been able to ever use fossil fuels to improve their lives. Hmm. So it seems rather presumptuous to me, um, you know, um, it would seem rather presumptuous to me living in a suburb and in a wealthy area of the country to start protesting the use of fossil fuels when your entire 
life has benefited so greatly from them. And there are so mm -hmm. many other people that have not been able to use them. And so the, the economics generally is, is looking at trade-offs, right? It, it's looking at, at, because nothing is perfect, right? Nothing is, I mean, very few things are perfect. There are a few things that are perfect, but, but when it comes to these decisions and these businesses, there's always what we call negative externalities. There's always things that, uh, but there's a balance. Mm -hmm. and, and that that's presumably that's what the state is there to do is to to strike the proper balance between freedom of the individual or the company and the welfare of mm -hmm. the people that um and so um so anyway i got off that's a tangent uh that i just went that's on. all right you fit right um, in uh there but i i think you know again i i, I wish there was there were more um adult conversations for lack of a better term about some of these issues as opposed to people really just clutching their pearls and freaking out and and and, and saying like all right let's just calm down let's just think about you know, why is this good why is it bad what can we do practically mm -hmm. to, to get better and, i love that way of describing it adult yeah. conversations yeah and I, I think that you know too too many people want to yell and scream now i'm not yeah. quite sure what that's all about or there's uh, just so much bickering yeah i i, I yeah. don't know there's a lot of you know there's a lot of virtue signaling without virtue yeah find, you know that, right. that uh, the virtue signaling has become cut off from the virtue part where where you say you know what, what are you actually trying to achieve you know what what are yeah. you what are we we're trying to you know ultimately right you're trying to help people, other people, right? If you're Christian, if you're yeah. Catholic, that's a big part of your yeah. the way you approach things, right? So um, I don't know. I'm not yeah. sure you're screaming at somebody or, um, you know, or damaging an artwork someplace is a really productive yeah. way of doing that. Hmm. Yeah. Speaking of damaging an artwork, total tangent, total tangent. Uh, I was reading uh, the news earlier today. And there was this thing about this guy, his artwork, it was modern art. He duct taped a banana to a wall and then someone came in and ate that banana. Oh, that was the, uh, that was the act. That was the work of art. But see, so, what bothers me with that is that same exact thing happened a couple of years ago. I saw that same story. And maybe Matt, it was the same thing. No, maybe no. It was it, the same thing. It's not because this happened a couple of years ago. A guy did that. And then another artist came in and, and ate it. And he said that he was contributing to the art. And so this is just <laughs> plagiarizing the art. It's not even, it's AI chatbot art. That's, it's not, it's AI not the real chat thing. I don't, I don't support art. it. Um, yeah, no doubt. No doubt. No doubt. Listen, Jason, you've been, you've been really generous to, to give us this time. I, I want to ask you one last question. Uh, before, before we wrap up, um, it's something that you've alluded to a couple times in your answers already, uh, but it's something that you hold as as a management principle at Strategus, and that is humility. Now, humility in the context of the financial world and uh, stocks and bonds and trading and everything like that would would be one thing, but then there's there's the deeper human principle and virtue of of humility. So, talk to me a little bit about what what humility means to you as as management principle and as a, a life principle. Yeah, I mean, I well, it's thank you for asking that question uh, because it is it's very um, and you know one of my favorite Bible verses is right the the exalted shall be humbled and the humbled shall be exalted right mm. and I think the first shall be last the last shall be first and there's, there's obviously so much of uh, so much of the Gospels is about uh, the virtue of humility and I, I find um, I, I think it's 
especially if you're a capitalist, right? Uh, if, if capitalism is done right, there's failure. People are allowed to fail. And uh, we could get uh, go on that, but that's one of the problems with Wall Street right now a little bit is that some of these companies are too big to fail, mm. so which creates other issues. But, but uh, from my perspective, humility in all things, right? Humility, not just, as you said, not just in, in terms of the way we forecast the markets, because you're going to be wrong. That, that is part and parcel of even if you're great, you're, you're going to be wrong plenty of times and you, you, you have to learn from that. I think humility also in terms of the way you're dealing with other people uh, to, to understand building our business, that it's it's very much, you know, I, everyone says this, but in our, our case, I really believe it's true. It's very much a team effort. Um, our partners sit out among everyone else. Uh, we have our own offices, but day to day we sit side by side with everyone else in the in the company um and so um and that keeps us closer to um the people who work with us and it keeps us closer to the clients and so and i i think that's good from a, a maybe a moral point of view but i also think it's a very practical practically good thing for a company um as well and so um you know in my life i haven't found it hard to be humble i mean so many of the things i love in life are humiliating, you know, like, uh, <laughs> you know, baseball. Or are you a Mets fan? Or, are you a Mets fan too? Because yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I know all about fan. being humiliated. It's, it's just, it's worse uh, right now. But, but yeah, no, it's you know, worse. whether it's baseball or golf or, or the financial markets, you know, there's a lot of things that can break your heart, you know, so, right. um, and, uh, but it's good. It's, I mean, it's not the worst thing. Yeah, yeah I, I think, I mean, stereotypically, right? Like, Stereotypically, the Wall Street guy is like the guy with the massive bravado, and you know, uh, it has it. Leading up to this interview, something that I was thinking a lot about was how Christ calls us to be meek, um, but being meek and being weak are different things. Absolutely, right you know, and and so it is. You are capable of making strong decisions, good decisions, and still being meek. And I think meekness really is very similar to humility yeah i i never thought of it that way but i i love that i i think i think that you're 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 right yeah because i can do anything if you're weak thanks i i I thought i thought the rhyme was real nice (laughs) no it's great i I love it i'm gonna steal that please do (laughs) i probably stole it from someone and didn't realize so (laughs) right good artists good artists create great artists steal and i stole that from father (laughs) sam because some artists steal bananas and, and eat he them. Stole and he stole it. Oh, you know? me to it. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, Jason, thanks so much. This is this is great, and and I I really love the, I, I love this approach that you've got. Not not just uh, on the the Wall Street side of things, but also recognizing that the work that you're doing at Wall Street is going to have an impact on the whole of our society. The work that happens in in the financial world really does have a, a both a practical and a philosophical impact on what's going on in the in the broader society in politics and everything else and it's important for us to keep those things together so i really appreciate that that work that you're doing and uh, giving us the time here today um we're going to wow. link to yes. your website and to all, all kinds of other stuff that, that you've been uh, contributing in our in our show notes if you want to learn more about jason trenner check out the show notes uh for, for the tangent today. And uh, Jason, again, thanks so much for, for joining us. Thank you for being here. It's my honor and privilege, gentlemen. Thank you very much. Awesome. God bless you. Thank you.